Alright, I hope your brain has recovered from our last lecture and our initial discussions of Hume and that you have figured out exactly what's going on with this method because it's time to jump back in and see what he does from here on out. Um, the good news is this lecture should probably be short. I'm hoping to keep it short. Uh, part of the reason is because there's like like the most difficult part of getting Hume is understanding his method. So once you figure that out, seeing his applications, I think are pretty straightforward. So we're just going to sort of like touch on some key points in both of the sections that we read for today. But also I want to leave time for you to watch the video that I'm hopefully preparing on research this week. Um, more on that later, by which I mean my later, because again, it's March 26th for me. So this is like way in the past for you in all likelihood. Um, I think I'm recording this one like three weeks early. Uh, that's intentional because I expect that this video that I am hoping to put together on research is going to take a lot of time on my end, even if it doesn't take a whole lot of time on yours. And I do want you to focus on that because the research paper is coming. Um, and I do want you to be ready when it comes up. I want you to, to have like the best possible preparation for it. So definitely watch that video. It should be online at roughly the same time as this one in roughly the same area on canvas. Um, so be sure to watch that and we will try and keep this to like half an hour, 45 minutes or something. Um, anyway, like I said, I mostly just want to hit the key points of Hume um, and these two chapters. We read on miracles for today and we read his last chunk on the academic or skeptical philosophy. Um, both are pretty important in their own right. Like the section on miracles especially is arguably the most famous part of this book, um, even if it is fairly controversial. I'm not sure if it warrants that, but again like you know philosophy is what philosophy is um people get excited about weird stuff anyway the key here with this discussion of miracles is kind of super obvious especially after we talked about uh hume's discussion of the idea of god in the last lecture like once you establish that god is beyond our understanding that they're like any supernatural event is by definition not something we can understand because we can only understand things in terms of repeated experience and therefore is it natural um it kind of makes the issue of miracles pretty obvious to parse um, like what Hume does in part one is basically make this clear. A miracle is a violation of the laws of nature and as a firm and un unalterable experience has established these laws, the proof against a miracle from the very nature of the fact is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. That's the second paragraph on page 877, the first line. And that really encapsulates it. Like you don't need to know anymore. Um, if the entirety of our knowledge is based on repeated experiences and miracles defy our repeated experiences, then there is no way to reproduce and then there, therefore there is no way to understand or know or even trust miracles. Period. The end. Case closed. Hume can walk away and be done. Um, now, that said... Um, he does go into more detail about it. Like this is the sort of open and shut case as far as miracles are concerned. Like they can't possibly be tracked. They can't possibly be proven. They can't possibly be understood or committed to habit or custom. Therefore, they can't be known. Case closed. Um, he does want to elaborate on that a little bit. He wants to talk about the possible origins of miracles. And to be honest, like, this is the sort of argument against Christianity that you're going to see, like, all the time in atheist circles, online, on the internet today. Um, a 
round anyone who will argue against the the foundations of the Christian faith, especially. Um, the basically like part two is just a systematic takedown part by part. Um, first off, there's not enough people attesting to any one miracle. Second off, um, we recognize that people are especially gullible to the subject of miracles like we are all extremely excited when like something wild and unexpected happens um you know we all want to hear the story of the person who got struck by lightning and lived to tell the tale or who was like in a tunnel when it collapsed but managed to climb to safety like these are exciting things to us we were surprised we're we're you know we wonder at this stuff um, and what Hume is basically arguing is, you know, since we go out and seek these sorts of exciting, um, over the top stories, it makes sense that we would be like susceptible to people telling us about miracles, even if they aren't actually grounded in fact or things that actually happened. But even more importantly, like for Hume, again, remember like experience impressions, these are the most important data that we have all of our ideas are supposed to be based in these impressions which means that every step you remove a person from the actual impression itself is a step that reduces its impact and influence with christianity especially which is grounded in these historical miracles like exodus and the ten plagues jesus being resurrected um seeing as these are two thousand year old miracles and more um, even if they did happen, like, how could we trust it? How could we trust, you know, the eyewitness to tell it to the next generation to record it on, into a book that we would then read for like hundreds of years? Where would we verify this is what Hume is basically saying. Um, and most importantly, and this is the one that I really want to draw attention to because this is like the best argument he comes up with. Um, as far as like why doesn't he believe in miracles what like what is the foundation of this argument basically he says no matter what given this framework for his understanding no matter what experience is the guide of our knowledge custom habit all of those things again everything we know is based on our experience based on repeated events based on these repeated conjoined events you know the car is above the floor the car drops to the floor these are the two things that we connect um he notices like even no matter how likely no matter how well attested the miracle might be. The fact of the matter is the laws of science reject it. The laws of our own experience, the laws that define our knowledge reject it. And the laws of our experience confirm that people are inclined to lie. At the end of the day, we have tons of examples of people lying to us on a regular basis. Like every single one of us listening to this lecture has probably both told and been told a lie at some point. Um, it is a common fact of human nature. It is something that experience teaches us very well. And therefore, if we are confronted with someone who reports the existence of a miracle and we are sitting there asking, could this have happened? If the thing that is being reported sounds so unlikely as to violate the laws of nature, like the sun stopping in its rotation for a day or a man coming back from the dead, then obviously we should need to weigh that, this violation against which there is just insurmountable data, tons of experience of people not coming back from the dead, of the world continuing to spin on, versus the incredible likelihood of people lying to us. At the end of the day, 
a lie is much more believable than a miracle every time. No question, logically speaking, it is always more reasonable to believe that you are being lied to than it is to believe that a miracle has happened. Um, which is a pretty solid argument. Like, he makes a really strong case here. This is, I suspect, why this section is as popular as it is. Um, so, basically, what he is emphasizing here is that we have no reason to believe miracles, period. Like, they cannot be demonstrated using the methods by which we make knowledge. Like, we can't do it with science. We can't track miracles. We cannot, like, test or experiment on miracles. We cannot repeat miracles. That's the very nature of what it is to be a miracle. On the other side, there is always the likelihood that someone is lying to you, which is something that happens all the time. We have tons of experience of people lying to us. Um, now, that said... He does not come out and out and say that Christianity is nonsense. Um, instead, what he emphasizes is that it must be based in faith, not in reason. So notice on page 885, the one paragraph there, um, right at the beginning, he says, I am the better pleased with the method of reasoning here delivered, as I think it may serve to confound those dangerous friends or disguised enemies to the Christian religion who have undertaken to defend it by the principles of human reason. Our most holy religion is founded on faith, not on reason, and it is a sure method of exposing it to put it to such a trial as it is by no means fitted to endure. In short, Hume is trying to change the way that religion is understood. And at this point in time, in the 18th century, like this is a fairly popular notion. A lot of people have sort of been poking at religion and changing the way that we understand it. Throughout the 17th century, we have people like Hobbes and Locke changing the attitudes towards politics. Now we are right in the middle of the Enlightenment. We've got the philosophes questioning religion. We have guys like the Founding Fathers ascribing to deism, like there is a god, but he started the world and then just is, has been hands-off since. There's been an increasing distance intellectually from assigning religion a rational foundation. Um, and I want to stress this because this is one of the key questions that we're dealing with in this class. Like you'll remember one of the paper questions is, is faith or is religion based on faith or reason? Um, because this is a disagreement that Hume is also having with most of the philosophers we've had before this. Like Aquinas would say religion is totally based on reason. Here is his argument. Everything that moves must be moved by something. Everything that... Um, like, this could not go on forever, there cannot be an infinite regress of moving things, therefore there must be some prime mover that causes everything to move. That's a rational argument. Aquinas believes that not only is his religion based on faith, he assesses, you know, like, it is in fact based on faith, but also as he stresses in that first question on the science of uh, religious doctrine, um, it is also based on reason. Reason tells us the same thing that faith does. Um, there is tons of evidence in the world around us to say that faith is based in reality. Descartes is doing the same thing. Again, he's got that argument. I have this idea of God, must have come from someplace, couldn't have come from the world, couldn't have come from me, must have come from God, therefore God exists. That's again his faith being based on reason. 
Um, now, Hume, on the other hand, is coming from the Protestant tradition, and the Protestants are a little bit fuzzier on this subject of how does faith work. Um, like, again, there's no one rule when it comes to Protestantism. As always, there's like 50 billion opinions for, you know, 5 billion people. Um, so what Hume is saying is faith needs to be held separate from reason. What the church tells us we can believe but we have to believe purely on faith, not assuming that there is rationality behind it. And notice the way that he phrases it here, um, because it's kind of telling. I think it may serve to confound those dangerous friends or disguised enemies to the Christian religion who have undertaken to defend it by the principles of human reason. He's basically saying, I am a better Christian than the Christians who make rational arguments for the sake of their Christianity. He is saying, I understand that religion is a matter of faith. The people who say that it is a matter of reason are either dangerous friends or disguised enemies. Um, essentially, he's saying that these people, the people who are making these so-called philosophical arguments for the truth of religion, are basically undermining the very principles that define the faith. Hume is, quote-unquote, rescuing Christianity from these people, from Aquinas, from Descartes, from people who tell everyone your faith can be demonstrated and those people will then be very upset when they try and demonstrate it and find that there's actually a good bit of evidence against what they have to believe. Um, this is not universal is what I want to stress. Hume is doing something different here. He is making an argument, making a case. He's not the first to make this case. He certainly won't be the last, but there is an argument to be had here. Christian faith can and has for thousands of years at this point been grounded in rational philosophical arguments. It has been contended for. By contrast, Hume is saying, nope, it's just faith. If you believe that's your business, I'm not going to fault you or credit you either way, but it's going to be a matter of faith. Don't pretend that you have rational arguments, proofs, to demonstrate what you believe. That's not a thing. Um, we're going to see that a lot more as we continue forward. Like, this is the last one of our modern philosophers from here. We're going to be moving into postmodernism. Our next reading is Nietzsche, um, and then we will be pushing forward into the pragmatists, and then finally Wittgenstein. All of these thinkers very much recognize that religion, if you buy into it, is a faith thing, not a reason thing. Um, there, That doesn't mean that people don't exist who don't believe that their faith isn't based in reason. Like, if you talk to a lot of Catholic scholars, a lot of Catholic philosophers of the last 150 years, you will find tons of them defending the basis of their religion in reason. Um, there is, in fact, an argument to be had here. If you want to talk about this, by all means, I'd love to read your paper on it, but recognize there are two sides, and there are defenders on both sides. It is a nuanced argument. Um, and just because you say religion is based entirely on faith doesn't mean that you're not religious in your own right. Famously, a 19th century philosopher named Kierkegaard argues that faith is by nature absurd. That's a selling point. It's a feature, not a bug. 
Um, and in fact, in order to commit to the faith, you have to make a leap of faith. You have to leave reason behind. This is like the test, the ritual by which you overcome your own intelligence, by which you admit that there is a greater logic, a greater law to the world than just what your reason apprehends. Um, so there's a lot to be said here. This conversation is just like, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Um, but I do want to stress that Hume sees religion as the product of faith alone. Reason is a danger to it. And in that he is arguing against Aquinas, Descartes, and many other philosophers before and since. But enough about miracles, enough about religion, let us move on to his last section of the academic or skeptical philosophy. Again, I want to kind of touch on main points here, but I feel like this one needs a little bit more explanation. Um, see, Hume is an empiricist. Like, again, we there's this distinction in modern philosophy between the rationalists like Descartes and the empiricists like Hume. Rationalists include Descartes, Malbranche, uh, Spinoza. These are all thinkers who believe that the world um, or that knowledge is best gained through reason, a priori reason, reason before experience. They all distrust the senses to some degree, or at the very least, they consider that most of philosophy should be done a priori, before taking experience into account. By contrast, there are also empiricists in this modern period, primarily British and Scottish empiricists, but there are others. And empiricists believe that all knowledge, without exception, is based on experience, impressions, as Hume would say. That includes Locke and Hobbes, the great political philosophers in England. That includes Hume. That includes a lot of thinkers across the board. Um, in general, this discussion is one of the primary arguments that is taking place in the 17th and 18th centuries in philosophy. Um, again, rationalists believe in a priori reasoning, reasoning before experience. Empiricists believe that all knowledge is based on experience, a posteriori reasoning, i.e. rationality after experience. Or in Hume's case, no rationality at all which is where Hume diverges from the rest of the empiricists. While Locke and Hobbes are kind of typical empiricists arguing that everything that they know is based on their experience, Hume goes a step further and questions the ideas of both Locke and Hobbes because, as we've discussed, for Hume, rationality and experience, ideas and impressions, matters of fact, relations of ideas, these are always in separate boxes. You cannot jump from one to the other. Like, the application of reason to experience is only useful insofar as it is preceded by experience. And it is not guaranteed. It is always an analogical argument you are making. You may be able to use geometry and physics and experience and math to justify, like, this is how a plane can take off the ground, or this is why I should shoot this weapon at this particular angle. That's fine, but the only reason it works is because we've seen it work. Custom, habit, experience has taught us this by repeated adventures. You cannot get to this through reason alone. It's only the fact that we see it through experience that we can argue that our reason holds anyway. Um, this is what makes him a skeptic. And he parades this. He is excited about the fact that he is a skeptic. Um, earlier, we didn't touch on it very much, but back in section five, he even argued that skepticism is the most active kind of philosophy. It does not allow you to rest 
assured in your knowledge. It constantly forces you to rethink what you think you know. In this sense, he's definitely reaching back to that same principle we've been talking about with Plato and Descartes and, like, everybody, know yourself. Doubt yourself is what Hume is basically saying here. The best kind of philosophy is the philosophy that does not create some elaborate, involved system of proofs and disproofs, but rather is a system that specifically argues against the sort of big idealistic programs of guys like Descartes and Spinoza. Philosophy questions primarily. That is its first and foremost job. Instead of charting like how knowledge works, it charts the limits of that knowledge. And that's what Hume has been doing this whole book. Like Locke in his work, uh, the Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, I think he has a different, slightly different name for it, but he has a similar book. Um, he is basically saying this is how knowledge works. This is how we understand objects. This is how we understand space. This is how we understand all this stuff. It's all based on experience, but this is how our minds work. Hume is saying half of that stuff we've got to throw out because you don't know that stuff. You're just doing, quote, abstraction, which is nonsense for Hume. Abstraction is not something you can do. You're just giving a fancy name to this process of understanding through experience, through custom. Um, so... On the one hand, he's questioning the empiricists and shooting down their philosophy. But on the other hand, he's also shooting down the skepticism that Descartes claims. There's a line that he's charting here between these two extremes. Conviction that like our experience can teach us rational truths and proofs. On the one hand, like Locke does, he rejects that because reason cannot guarantee any matters of fact. On the other hand, he's challenging Descartes and the old school skeptics, the Pyrrhonists, by saying... If you doubt your senses, you're already done. Like, with reference to Descartes especially, um, there is no solution to your suspicion of the senses. If the senses are where all knowledge begins, if they are the basis for all knowledge, if you're like, well, what if the senses aren't right, then you can literally know nothing ever, period, the end. Remember, Descartes solves this problem by saying, I think, therefore I am, which Hume would generally, like, begrudgingly agree to. But his next step is to posit that there is a god who is trustworthy. And Hume has already made it very clear that he's not going to do that. See, notice here on page 893, this big paragraph that breaks over the two columns. There's a species of skepticism antecedent to all study in philosophy, which is much inculcated by Descartes and others as a sovereign preservative against error and precipitate judgment. It recommends a universal doubt, not only of all of our former opinions and principles, but also of our very faculties, of whose veracity, they say, we must assure ourselves by a chain of reasoning deduced from some original principle which cannot possibly be fallacious or deceitful. But neither is there any such original principle which has a prerogative above others that are self-evident and convincing. Or if there were, could we advance a step beyond it but by the use of those very faculties of which we are supposed to be already diffident? The Cartesian doubt, therefore, were it ever possible to be attained by any human creature, as it plainly is not, would be entirely incurable, and no reasoning could ever bring us to a state of assurance and conviction upon any subject. What he is saying is, if you start from Descartes' position, doubting the senses, and you reach, I think, therefore I am, which again, Hume does not reject here, that's it. You are now stuck, because literally any, any knowledge that you could gain at this point would be based in your impressions. 
Even Descartes' argument that ideas lead us to the concept of God, for Hume he would either reframe that in the perspective of impressions, i.e. I have an impression of having an idea, or alternatively we would jump right into the there can't be a God, you're already reasoning beyond what you can know. In either case, Descartes will not hold. It doesn't work. This skepticism is a dead end. It is a closed box. You are screwed the minute you start in on it. So what he is saying is there is a good skepticism. Skepticism is terribly important. It's the most valuable kind of philosophy there is. But there's good skepticism and there's bad skepticism. Good skepticism notices the limits of our understanding. It recognizes this is what science does. This is what science can't tell us. Science can tell us this thing always accompanies this other thing. B always follows A. Therefore, if we see A, we should expect B, and we can live by that. We can make principles. We can call them universal laws. They aren't 100% proven. They're not guaranteed, but they're still fairly reliable. They still give us knowledge. We can still govern our lives in this way. However, there is also a bad skepticism. You can go too far. You can say, I don't have any reason to trust my senses, in which case Hume is like, well, why are we even here then? What can you know if you give up on your senses? And if you bring in God, you better believe that Hume is ready with counter-arguments. So he's saying there's no point in doubting sense. There's no merit in it. There's no benefit in it. It doesn't get us anywhere. Good skepticism causes us to recognize our limitations. It causes us to curtail knowledge beyond what we can know. It causes us to stop asking questions like, is there a God, when we cannot find out the answer through reason. Um, by contrast, if you are doubting all of, your, um, all of your knowledge, if you are questioning those limits, if you are acknowledging science can only tell us this much, it'll prevent us from running into errors like Locke and Hobbes are doing by running into, like, here is extension. This is like th there's a sort of identity to objects that we can't touch or know. Um, like Hume doesn't see any reason to believe in that. There's nothing to be gained from talking about that. There's certainly no way that you can get to God from there. Um, so basically, he's outlining what skepticism is supposed to look like here. He is suggesting, you know, this is what our conduct when doing philosophy should look like. You want to talk about knowing your limits? This is it, charting those limits. Recognizing that the entirety of our knowledge is the system that he has talked about earlier. And he summarizes it on page 897 in the first column. The skeptic, therefore, had better keep within his proper sphere and display those philosophical objections which arise from more profound researches. Here he seems to have ample matter of triumph, while he justly insists that one... All our evidence for any matter of fact which lies beyond the testimony of sense or memory is derived entirely from the relation of cause and effect, meaning, again, all of our knowledge about the world is cause and effect, two, that we have no other idea of this relation than that of two objects which have been frequently conjoined together, i.e. everything we know about cause and effect is literally just us experiencing A then B, B follows A, therefore A supposedly causes B how we don't know. Three, that we have no argument to convince us that objects which have, in our experience, been frequently conjoined will likewise, in other instances, be conjoined the same manner. We can't see gravity. We can't see the 
passage of motion from one billiard ball to another. We cannot see whatever force causes our mind to cause our hand to move. All of this is black boxed to us. It is something we cannot sense and therefore cannot know. And four, nothing leads us to this inference but custom, or a certain instinct of our nature which it is indeed difficult to resist. That's it. The whole system, the entirety of our limits of knowledge. All of our knowledge about the world comes from cause and effect. By cause and effect, we just mean simple conjunction. B follows A. We have no way of seeing why A causes B, if that's in fact the case. And lastly, it's only custom that causes us to believe this, not reason. That's it. Some total of the program, some total of what philosophy should be doing. Close the book. And if you, if you don't like... If you don't trust me on this one, he says it explicitly several times in this text. Way back in section five, he said it. There's a point where like he's closing part one of section five and he's like, so we're done now. Like here I am, I have explained all of the limits of our knowledge. We can kind of be finished, but you know, books have to be longer than this, right? So I'm gonna write a whole bunch of applications of how my system works in certain cases, like miracles, like free will, like whether or not animals reason, like necessity, like probability. Um, but here he's even more obvious about it. At the very end of this book, he just systematically knocks out all of these kinds of knowledge that he re reasons are out of our explanation or uh, ability to know. As he says, this is page 899, all other inquiries of men regard only matter of fact and existence, and these are in evidently incapable of demonstration. That means instead of math. On the one hand, you've got math, great. Numbers, playing with numbers, has no bearing on the world. Triangles have 180 degrees, great. All theoretical, doesn't have any bearing in the real world, although sometimes we can apply it to our experience, sure. Whatever is may not be. No negation of a fact can involve a contradiction. The non-existence of any being without exception is as clear and distinct an idea as its existence. Meaning, again, there are no contradictions in reality. There are no philosophical proofs in reality. We cannot say with 100% deductive certainty the sun will rise tomorrow or the sun will not rise tomorrow. We can't even say with 100% certainty that there is a sun or was a sun insofar as it is some rational proof. All we can say is, I see a thing. And I assume that there is a thing there because there has been things there in front of my sight when I see things most of the time. Like I can see a plate on my desk, There, I can see the sun in the sky, I assume that the plate is consistent and will continue to be a plate. I therefore assume that the sun exists and will continue to be the sun. Um, the existence, therefore, he continues, of any being can only be proved by arguments from its cause or its effect, and these arguments are founded entirely on experience. If we reason a priori before experience, anything may appear able to produce anything. The falling of a pebble may, for all we know, extinguish the sun, or the wish of a man control the planets in their orbits. It is only experience which teaches us the nature and bounds of cause and effect, and enables us to infer the existence of one object from that of another. Such is the foundation of moral reasoning, which forms the greater part of human knowledge and is the source of all human action and behavior. And notice how he starts systematically discussing these. Moral reasonings are either concerning particular or general facts. All deliberations in life regard the former as also all disquisitions in history, chronology, geography, and astronomy. Moral reasoning is stuff about reality. 
It is stuff about the particular or general facts. Anything that has to do with history, anything that has to do with geography, anything that has to do with astronomy, these are moral reasonings. The sciences which treat of general facts are politics, natural philosophy, physics, chemistry, etc., where the qualities, causes, and effects of a whole species of objects are inquired into. Moral reasonings are, cap are captured by the sciences. The sciences, we know. Natural philosophy is basically just nature philosophy. Biology is basically what it's boiled down to at this point, since physics and chemistry are different things at this point. P.S. Science is becoming a thing in the time of Hume and Descartes. In the 17th and 18th century, we go from there are no distinct sciences from philosophy proper. Everything is just natural philosophy when you're talking about nature. Um, to now we have a distinction between natural philosophy and say chemistry, physics, and the other disciplines that are starting to branch off of it. Um, the sciences, he's down with. The sciences are the business of establishing custom, habit. They are proving what we already know by instinct. Um, they are giving us those simpler principles that we understand the world through. Um, Divinity or theology, he continues, as it proves the existence of a deity and the immortality of souls, is composed partly of reasonings concerning particular, partly concerning general facts. It has a foundation in reason so far as it is supported by experience, but its best and most solid foundation is faith and divine revelation. The ground of religion is faith, he emphasizes again. He's not saying that, like, theology is nonsense. He is saying that theology is based primarily in faith. There are reasons once you get past the first initial principles, but all of those first initial principles are found on faith and faith alone. Again, all the miracles and such. Now, the next one is a little sneaky. Morals and criticism are not so properly objects of the understanding as of taste and sentiment. Beauty, whether moral or natural, is felt more properly than perceived. Or if we reason concerning it and endeavor to fix its standard, we regard a new fact, namely the general taste of mankind, or some such fact which may be the object of reasoning and inquiry. He's talking about ethics here, as well as aesthetics, and both he considers a matter largely of opinion. If there is a more principled, like, general way to discuss it, it's based on what he observes the run of mankind to do. If everyone agrees that murder is wrong, you can come up with this quasi-universal principle, although it is not grounded in reason so much, again, as experience. Experience teaches us that people think that murder is wrong, therefore murder must apparently be wrong. The same way that reason that experience teaches us that the sun will rise tomorrow and that as a result it should probably or that the sun rose yesterday and as a result it should probably rise tomorrow as well but notice that's it his last paragraph says when we run over libraries persuaded of these principles what havoc must we make if we take in our hand any volume of divinity or school metaphysics for instance let us ask does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number is it about math no? Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence? Is it science? Is it based on our repeated experiences, custom, habit? No? Commit it then to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. In short, he's saying Descartes, Plato, Aristotle, all of the medieval philosophers, all of the ancient philosophers after Plato and Aristotle, all of the pre-Socratic philosophers are bullshit, with no exceptions 
across the board. Anytime they're arguing about what we would call metaphysics, the world we cannot see, the world besides what we know through concrete, repeated, experimental, or otherwise experience, through our impressions, then it is pure nonsense, it is destructive and malicious, we should get rid of it. All of the philosophy we've covered in this class so far should be committed to the flames. It is sophistry and illusion, without exception. Hume is basically saying that you have been wasting the last, you know, three months of your life. Congratulations. Hooray! My job is a joke. But let's back up here for a moment. Um, what Hume is essentially saying here is this is it. There is math, there is science, that's the sum total. You can have books on religion as long as they acknowledge that they rest on faith alone. You can have books on morality as long as they rest on principles like everybody does X. That's it. There is no rational, deductive, 100% guaranteed principle underlying morality, underlying aesthetics, underlying religion. All of that stuff, all of the metaphysical texts, all of the religious texts like Aquinas's that rely on these arguments for the existence of God, all of these books that say we have an ethical responsibility to do X or Y, all of these books that say beauty is a result of X or Y, all nonsense, all committed to the flames. For Hume, if it isn't math and it isn't science, it isn't knowledge period. It does not count. Now, I say this, and I know it's a big deal, like I do not want to, you know, de-emphasize this in any way, um, but I also need to stress that this is not the end-all and be-all of modern philosophy. Like, our next reading is Nietzsche, and Nietzsche is going to start out guns blazing decrying philosophers for committing to elaborate metaphysical systems and so on and so forth. And it is not going to make any sense if you followed uh, Hume directly with Nietzsche. Because Nietzsche is basically just destroying stuff that Hume apparently already destroyed. Um, see, Nietzsche is responding not to Hume. I suspect Nietzsche, if he read Hume, really liked him. Um, Nietzsche is responding to the guys who came after Hume. Um, and most importantly is Immanuel Kant. Uh, like, in the grand history of philosophy, it is frequently said that, like, everyone is just a footnote to Plato. Um, Plato is the greatest philosopher who ever lived, and we're all just, like, ribbing off of the stuff that he's already, already wrote. Um, if there is one philosopher who is not, like who is almost as important as Plato, one philosopher who has had as great an impression on the discipline as Plato, it's Kant. Like, if you look in our textbook, you will find that something like 300 pages are devoted to Plato. You will find that... Hold on, let me check. I'll check myself. There are 200 pages devoted to Plato. There's about 100 pages devoted to Aristotle. Eh, 140, let's say. If you look at Immanuel Kant, there's 200 pages devoted to him as well. He is a huge deal. He totally changes the way that philosophy works. His system is the single most important modern philosophical undertaking that anyone did in the period between the Renaissance and the 19th century. I cannot emphasize Kant enough. Now I realize we're not reading Kant in here. 
There are reasons for that. One is he is famously difficult. Like, the joke is that German students who read Kant in their philosophy classes, Kant wrote in German, they do not read him in the original German. Instead, they read English translations because the English translations make more sense. Because Kant is famously convoluted, famously difficult to read. He is, like, crazy involved and crazy circuitous. And in the German especially, it's just a nightmare because German has this weird sentence structure thing where you just, like, stack all your nouns or all your verbs at the end of the sentence, which just makes it a giant pile of gobbledygook because of, like, these crazy long sentences that Kant strings together. Um, but I have to stress... Kant responds and answers a lot of the things that Hume is challenging here. Um, Kant read Hume's inquiry concerning human understanding as well as his other treatises, and he writes in his introduction to the Critique of Pure Reason that it woke him from his dogmatic slumber. He had been buying into all of these old-school philosophers before Hume, and then Hume woke him up. But Kant was convinced that he could find a solution, that the reason of the mind and the experience of the senses could be united that it, they did not have to live in separate boxes that you could take math apply it to reality and get something meaningful something that is based in deductive proofs so what Kant embarks to find is what he calls synthetic a priori judgments can you make observations about the world based on multiple a priori principles, like Descartes' I think, therefore I am, can you do that and still retain the rationality of it? Does, can you do it before experience? Can you make conclusions about the world before you learn anything about the world, basically? Um, and the solution he comes up with is what he calls the categories of the understanding. For Kant... Again, the central problem in Hume is that we have, you know, all of this experience and it does not map on our rationality. We have all of these repeated experiences and that's how we know things. That's the only way that we can know things. There is no knowledge before experience. For Kant, he assesses, yes, that's true, there is no knowledge before experience, but we have to process our knowledge through some kind of pre-existing structure, this apparatus, these categories that allow us to categorize and sort of sort our understanding into meaningful connections and meaningful systems. So he starts with space and time. We do not need experience we, because we already understand space and time. This is the way our minds work. For Kant, this is before experience. This is before we have any like observations about the world. This is just, we are built with space and time as structures in our minds, which we understand the world through. So when we are given like an object, we will process it by nature through these categories, space and time. Now, these categories are universal. They're shared by everyone who is rational. Every rational being, more than just like you and me and the rest of the human race, if we encountered some rational alien somewhere, they would also have a concept of space and time in some capacity. Like I said, universal. 
And since it's universal, since it is dependent not on experience but on reason, that means that it can be applied universally. It means more than just this idea that we have in our brains that has no bearing on reality. It means that all of us share and rationality holds for all of us. But even more than that, because we have these concepts of space and time, we can build to greater concepts, these categories. Things like motion, things like cause and effect. All you need is an object moving through space over the course of time, and that's movement. Don't need to observe it, can already comprehend it and understand it. All you need is space and time, and you can understand motion, you can understand cause and effect, you can understand resemblance, you can understand all these different categories of the understanding. That means that the categories are also universal. And that's what he is looking for, the synthetic a priori judgment. I can take space and time, combine them, and get motion. I can get take motion and compare it to other objects in space and time and get extension. I can get cause and effect. I can get all of these different relationships. These become universal and yet a priori. They are not dependent on experience, they still precede experience, thus solving the problem that Hume brings up, but at the same time, um, they are universal, they abide in all cases. They do not depend on your individual experience. Now the last piece of this, and again, I'm like doing the entirety of the Critique of Pure Reason, which is a giant like 600 page monstrosity of a book in like five minutes, so I'm skipping over everything. The way that this all works together, the way that you can have this understanding of space and time and apply it to actual experience and sensation, which again was a big mystery for Hume, bodies and minds, how does that work? For Kant, this is united under the synthetic unity of apperception, which is basically just a fancy term for I, me. By taking multiple experiences, by taking all of that custom that Hume is so keen to talk about and applying it to these internal pre-existent categories, I can understand the world and the way that it works rationally. And Kant's approach here is not to say this is how the mind works, he's saying this is how the mind must work because we already have science. His approach is transcendental. He is saying, because Newton proved gravity, because Copernicus could tell us about this, the various configurations of the universe, therefore our minds must work this way. There must be categories that unite all of our understanding. There must be a synthetic I that unites our lived experience, our impressions, with our ideas and our categories. This is necessary for human accomplishment, science, rationality, as we know it and observe it, to exist. It is a precondition for the science that Hume is talking about. And by saying this, he basically overturns Hume. Like, as much as Hume posed all those doubts, all that skepticism, questioned all of these issues, Kant has a system that solves it. And it is a really compelling system. Like, again, I do not recommend reading the Critique of Pure Reason without, you know, a helmet at the very least. Um, and if you are struggling through Descartes and Hume, then God help you if you take on Kant. Um, but it is worth a read, or at least a summary, just to see what he has in mind here. Um, the prolegomena to any future metaphysics is relatively like comprehensible. Um, the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals is really actually pretty good, and like 
it's great, but it's also about ethics. You might encounter that one if you uh, actually take an ethics course here or elsewhere. Um, the point, though, is that Kant fixes this. All of the questions, all of the challenges that Hume offers, Kant answers, overturns, and in a matter of like 20 years, there is a wide number of Kantian scholars who believe that this is what philosophy is going to look like from now on. Like, he is a big deal in his own time as much as he is a big deal now. Um, Nietzsche isn't responding to Hume's question and doubt. He is responding to Kant's systematic answer. Where Nietzsche says we have to tear down our old philosophical, like, bastions, he's not responding to the skepticism of Hume so much as he's responding to the idealism of Kant and Hegel and Schopenhauer. Um, Kant is just the first of several major German philosophers who all have these big systems, these big explanations for the way things are. They're not exactly doing metaphysics the way that Plato and Aristotle and Aquinas are doing metaphysics, but they are coming to metaphysical answers despite new methods and approaches. They're talking about the way reality is configured. For Kant, through these categories, for Hegel through this Alfheim process, um, which, like, we're not even, no, like, I'm not going there, not this time, maybe later. Um, and then for Husserl, there's even more stuff that I honestly couldn't even weigh in on. I am not a Husserl scholar. Um, there are a bunch of big systematizers. Nietzsche is interested in tackling and breaking those systems. Um, which is why he is so antagonistic to guys like Kant. You will see him deliberately reference Kant multiple times in The Twilight of the Idols as you read, if you know what to look for. We'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. Um, so I hope this has been enlightening. I hope that I haven't like completely harmed your mind or your ability to think through this stuff. I know that Hume is already heady enough, and then putting the five-minute summary of the Critique of Pure Reason on top of it is just crazy and stupid and probably not healthy at all um but here we are and you do need to know at least a little bit about kant before we get into nietzsche um so happy reading i hope to hear from you in the q a session feel free to ask about either kant or hume i will be happy to answer questions about both so far as i am able it's been a long time since i read kant um and for next week be sure to read nietzsche um, the one warning I have for Nietzsche is he is very different. Like, I know I've said that multiple times, like, the Tao Te Ching is very different, the Aquinas is very different, Descartes is very different, Nietzsche really is very different. Like, one of the things that he prides himself on is the fact that he does not explain his arguments. Um, he famously quotes himself as saying, like, I stride from mountaintop to mountaintop, conclusion to conclusion, and let, you know, other people figure out all of the reasoning that is involved. Um, so be careful with Nietzsche. Like, he's tricksy and dangerous, and his philosophy can end you, can end, put you in some pretty dark places if you don't, if you weren't sufficiently protected, let's put it that way. But we'll talk through that in the next week. Um, so again, read Nietzsche for next week. I look forward to talking it to you. In the meantime, feel free to question yourself and figure out whether you want to be an empiricist or a rationalist when you grow up and whether or not you think Kant is awesome. Spoilers, he is. Bye!